This is the Tactical Leader Podcast, where we're on a journey of self-mastery and true leadership. I believe that in order to lead others, you must first be able to lead yourself. And in order to lead yourself, you have to first know yourself. If you want to learn the tactics to get to know yourself, to lead yourself, and to lead others, stay tuned to hear from industry experts as I unpack the tactics that they've used to build their business, build culture, and lead others. Welcome, everyone. This is a great opportunity for us to have this opportunity with General Petraeus to debrief his recent book on conflict. I just finished reading it a couple of days ago, last chapter. To me, I was just awestruck reading it. I first want to say that the general opened himself up wide. 1945 to present, globally, seabed to space, Domains, human-machine teaming, human terrain, cyber, full electromagnetic warfare spectrum. Sir, we can go anywhere with, uh, with what you've covered in the book. First, what led you to write this book? And uh, yourself, I'm going to say Lord Roberts uh, never co-authored a book before, and it's your first, barring the counterinsurgency um, piece with your dissertation. How did you go about this? Well, first of all, thanks uh, for doing this. Thanks for all you did in your decades of service, shipmate. Um, thanks, Zach, for pulling this together with uh, with Ben's and uh, ATL vets and so forth. Uh, thanks to all of you for being here today. It is great to be back uh, in Atlanta. I must confess it's been all the way since COVID, uh, that, so it's, it really is wonderful to be back. Um, I should also note that even though I spent 37 years in an Army uniform, when I was asked about the retirement ceremony, I asked that there actually be a joint ceremony uh, because I'd spent seven of the previous 10 years commanding joint forces uh, in combat. Uh, and so we had Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine on that field, uh, and I'm pretty partial to all of them, except for one day of the year, <laughs> when it is definitely go Army, v Navy. Um, so what happened is uh, Andrew Roberts, uh, he was not Lord Roberts at that time. I was not a peerage groupie. Uh, he actually was named Baron Roberts of Belgravia while we were in the process of writing it. Uh, called me up and said, hey, you know, the Russians have just invaded Ukraine. Uh, there really should be a book that puts this into its military history context. Uh, and there really is not one out there like that. And I'd known Andrew very, very well. I've done a number of events with him over the years. A lot of you will remember his Churchill book, which was the best single volume biography of Churchill by far. We did five different conversations just on it at the New York Historical Society. Uh, he'd interviewed me on a number of occasions at different festivals uh, in the UK. We did one that was particularly fun at the British Army Museum, uh, which was on his book about George III, the much misunderstood George III, the last king of America. Uh, and the, the question of that evening was, could the British have won the American Revolutionary War? Uh, the answer to that was yes, of course they could if they'd had a competent civil military counterinsurgency campaign, which they did not, thankfully. Um, so when he called and you know this is his 20th book as you noted he'd never done one with anyone else before i felt quite flattered in that regard i'd actually been looking for an opportunity to write about the two wars that i was privileged to command iraq and afghanistan i'd done a dissertation previously uh, for a phd at princeton uh, on vietnam and i was eager to see what had transpired in the 20 or so years since i'd last really dug into that 
And so we went out to publishers um, and they asked him, so how are you going to go about writing this? Uh, what's the division of labor here? Uh, even though, I, again, I've, I've been a speechwriter a number of times as well. But still, you know, he's the real guy that makes a living doing this. And I'm somebody who's a partner in one of the world's greatest private equity funds. So um, he said, well, General Petraeus is going to write about the countries that he invaded, plus Vietnam, <laughs> uh, and he'd fill in the rest. And that's sort of how we did it. But there was a lot of back and forth. Uh, it turned out I knew something about some of these other wars as well. But those of you who, who have a copy will see what's interesting is that when it came to the chapters in Iraq and Vietnam, I originally sent them in in the third person. You know, a historian, you write in the third person. But the editor came back and said, this just, this doesn't work. You know, you can't sort of write in the third person. Then General Petraeus went to see Prime Minister Maliki of Iraq and raised the following concerns. And Maliki said to Petraeus and so forth, he said, I think you have to write this in the first person. And so those two chapters actually are in the first person. And again, it was a wonderful vehicle to do that without doing sort of a memoir and a tell-all, which is not something I really wanted to do. You emphasize the importance of strategic leadership. <clears throat> and as I read the book, I always wake up in the middle of the night and read for about an hour or two. Uh, and must have been during- You gotta work out harder, Bob. <laughs> I work out twice that's a, every day. That's a, that's a bad habit to get into. <laughs> but uh, I must have glossed over the, uh, the four points that you were emphasizing, but it was second, third chapter that you kept pounding and rebranding. Re, re then I went back and read again. And uh, I give you great credit for putting the meat of the content up front because Colin Powell's book, you had to read his life's journey for his 14 points at the end. And I tell everyone, read that book backwards. But uh, so your importance of strategic leadership, what are the tasks of a strategic leader and which is the most important of them? Well, this is a, an intellectual construct that I actually used. I developed it when I was between the three and four star commands in Iraq, uh, prior to the surge in Iraq. Uh, and I used it explicitly during the surge, then at U.S. Central Command, and then uh, the surge in Afghanistan, and also at the CIA. And it basically consists of four tasks. Uh, any, by the way, any leader actually has to perform these four tasks. The difference is that the strategic leader uh, is the one who determines number one in particular. You have to get the big ideas right. And all the other leaders are performing these four tasks I'll describe, but within the decision of the strategic leader when it comes to that first task. So first and foremost, by the way, in the business world as well, not just in conflict, you've got to understand the context in a very granular way. You have to understand the nature of the war when it comes to conflict, you know, your forces, their forces, the, the geographic terrain, the human terrain, and you have to get the big ideas right. You have to get the overarching strategy right. This sounds simple, but as we recount in the book, there are many cases where they did not get it right. And by the way, strategic leaders for this purpose, there's a commander in chief, the president of the United States or the prime minister of the UK uh, are often the civilian leaders. And they make some very fundamental decisions such as George H.W. Bush in response to Saddam's invasion of Kuwait. This will not stand. That's a big idea. Seems really obvious now, looking back, it was not obvious at the time. The military was not that eager uh, to go to a country in which they had no forces, Saudi Arabia, build up all the infrastructure and then get into a fight with what at that, that time was the third or fourth largest army in the world. 
Um, so you've got to get the big ideas right. And then the military commander, of course, has to take whatever the biggest of the big ideas uh, may be and translate them into a battlefield, a campaign, a strategy. Then you have to communicate the big ideas effectively throughout the breadth and depth of your organization. And conflict is to everyone who has a stake in the outcome of that conflict. You then have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. This is what we normally think of as leadership, by the way. This is the example the leader provides, the inspiration, the energy. Uh, it is how the leader spends his or her time. It's, we called it a battle rhythm. We had a very detailed schedule that what I did every single day of the week, combat seven days a week, 365 days a year, and you do certain things every single day. Then what do you do a few times a week, twice a week, once a week, every other week, monthly, quarterly, and so on? That's how you drive the implementation of that campaign plan that is the communication of the big ideas that you have settled on. Uh, and then the fourth task, which should be on your battle rhythm, is how, do, is how you need to refine the big ideas so that you can do it again and again and again. And by the way, over here in task number three, you also have to get the metrics right. Uh, they have to tell you, are you winning or losing? They have to be rigorous, they have to be honest. The body count in Vietnam was the wrong metric and then it turned out to be increasingly dishonest uh, as well. So you get a sense, I'll put this very, very quickly into civilian terms. Uh, there's a great company, Netflix, we all know well. Uh, Reed Hastings, one of the great strategic leaders of our time, right up there with Jack Ma and uh, Jeff Bezos and others. Um, I sat down and talked to him about this, actually. He has a, an explicit model that he uses. It's very similar to this. And if you think about it, there have been at least four incarnations of Netflix, maybe one or two more you can add on, but the first one, was they're gonna put movies in the hands of customers without brick and mortar. So they're gonna undercut Blockbuster. Um, that's the big idea, he communicates it, implements it, gets down here a couple of years later. Uh, how we doing? They're doing great. Uh, Blockbuster's going out of business and they're in very much in business. In fact, you may know, anybody know where the one Blockbuster in the continental US still is? Test question. What's that? At continental US. Big Bend, Oregon, who, who, who you win the sweepstakes there. So this is because they refuse, it's a famously contrarian place. They refuse to let their blockbuster die. It's now become a tourist attraction for all of those of my age who want to return to a place where they can actually rent a movie at brick and mortar. Anyway, that's the first incarnation. But of course now other people start doing what they're doing. So he realizes the context has changed and he says, you know what? We can have people download movies now uh, because broadband speeds are fast enough. That's the big shift. Okay, that's big idea number two. They work their way through that. The breakout comes with big idea number three. This is where they decide they're gonna make their own content. $100 million just on House of Cards alone. Many of the other iconic series that we all revisited during the early months of the pandemic when we had nothing else to do, couldn't go to the office. But that was the breakout moment. And then, you know, the final one, yes, they also go international in here and there's a few other uh, significant changes. But the final big idea is we're gonna make major motion pictures. So they go out and buy not one, but two major movie studios. And they do so well, talk about a good metric, they get more Academy Award nominations than any other major motion picture studio uh, three years ago, I think it was. Now I did take issue with him on one of those movies in which Brad Pitt played my very good friend in combat of many, many years, General Stan McChrystal, 
He marched around like a little wooden soldier. He had no sense of humor. You know, he's sort of saluting and all this stuff. And I said, that is not Stan McChrystal. And I said, besides, I cannot believe that Brad Pitt didn't hold out to play me. <laughs> but you get the idea. Um, four tasks, and we keep coming back to these, as you kindly noted, Bob, in these different chapters uh, to note where people did that right. And if they did it right, there's a pretty good chance that they would prevail. And if you don't, there's not a good chance. So let me give you just a couple of really uh, stark examples of getting the big ideas wrong. Think of the French in Indochina. So before we were involved in Vietnam, uh, they were very frustrated. They couldn't bring the communist Chinese to battle. Uh, they were, you know, they'd hit and run, guerrilla warfare, all this stuff. So they decided, let's build a huge base that'll be really attractive. We'll finally try get them into a big fight. And they create this place out of, uh, called Dien Bien Phu, a huge uh, French installation. Uh, by the way, as only the French could, the little outposts were named for the mistresses of the, fi the five mistresses of the French commander at the time. Um, they did attract the communist Chinese to, uh, or not Chinese, the communist Vietnamese uh, to battle big time. Uh, so much so that they ended up surrendering to them and of course had to leave Indochina. North and South Vietnam were partitioned uh, and then we came in. And frankly, the US did not get the big ideas right until probably 1968, over a decade into our time there. The South Vietnamese said, you know, we've got a problem in the villages and hamlets We'd really like to have local security forces, what we would call a counterinsurgency campaign. We said, no, 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 we've just fought in Korea. We'll tell you what you need. You need big divisions, big units, uh, and we'll help you develop units that look, of course, just like ours, because we're the best out there. And we make them develop all of these big units. And then we come in when, when the war starts going poorly uh, with big units and turn what should have been a small war into a big unit war. Uh, and it wasn't until 68 that we actually finally got the kind of comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign uh, that we should have had at the outset. And by then, tragically, the domestic public support in the U.S. had eroded so severely that it just wasn't possible to achieve all that we might have had we started much earlier. Thank you, sir. Uh, question here on evolution of a war since 1945. Is there a definite process that you've identified in which wars push the evolutionary process along fastest? Well, it's interesting because warfare does tend to push uh, the evolution of technology very rapidly. And I'll just go to the ones that I was privileged to command and have a couple of observations about that. Um, but it's, it evolves in fits and starts. Uh, and in fact, when you look at Ukraine, which I'm sure we'll come to at some moment, uh, Max Boot, the great Washington Post columnist, has characterized Ukraine the best of all when he says that it is where all quiet on the Western Front meets Blade Runner. You have everything from World War I style trenches and wire and all the rest of this, very, very deep minefields now on the Russian side in particular. Uh, you have really Cold War era uh, armors, vehicles and so forth, all the same systems when I was a major a brigade operations officer in Germany, you know, the M1 tanks, Leopards on the German side, and then on the Russian side, the same as what they have right now, T-62s, T-64s, T-72s, T-80s, and so on, with some newer ones, although not no, nowhere near as many as was expected 
the Russians advertised much more modernization than it turns out they actually did. But then you have very cutting edge uh, maritime drones. You have increasingly bleeding edge suicide air drones. So it's a real mix, but combat does really drive uh, evolution. And we've seen it, you know, in your and my lifetime, we saw the first real precision munitions uh, being used at, in sizable numbers in, in Desert Storm during the 39 days that our Air Force pounded Saddam's army before we were able to roll over them in a 100-hour uh, maneuver war. During, again, Iraq and Afghanistan, enormous increase in the number of drones, uh, so much so that ultimately what we've been able to do now is to enable other forces to do the fighting with what it is we put over top of them, uh, a lot of it with precision munitions of various types and sizes, and then with sensors that can tell us where everything is as well. So the intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance assets that we can now deploy have really transformed uh, warfare as well. It helps if you have a Secretary of Defense like Bob Gates, who I was privileged to have as I used to call him my Minister of War, um, all the four and a half or whatever years that I had these four-star commands, I mean, it, he was the sec def and I was fighting those wars for him. Uh, and he really pushed. I mean, he pushed so hard that when there was a bit of resistance in one of the services uh, about getting more drones, which we were demanding all the time, uh, he literally replaced the service secretary and the service chief. There was also some other issues in there. But that's what it takes. But warfare, especially if you're on the verge of losing a war, as we were in Iraq when the surge was launched, um, that will get people's attention and they will push and you can get the kind of responsiveness from our procurement system that normally, frankly, is not a characteristic of it. Since you brought up Iraq, uh, you state that there were two George W. Bushes when it came to Iraq. What did you mean by that? Well, there was a George W. Bush as commander-in-chief who essentially decided to invade Iraq uh, and largely allowed his Secretary of Defense uh, to run that particular war, Secretary of Defense uh, Donald Rumsfeld. Um, even to the point that the there was, instead of starting with an embassy right away, once we toppled the government and took down the regime, um, my view is we should have established an embassy right away and brought in all the existing organizations that you normally need in a post-conflict situation. Instead, I think because Rumsfeld wanted to continue to run the war rather than have to hand it off or share it with Secretary of State Powell, uh, that they insisted on establishing what was called the Coalition Provisional Authority, which became a very, very challenging endeavor for those of us who were on the ground because the people in it were rotating on a three-month basis, with a handful of exceptions, including, to be fair, the overall uh, ambassador in charge. But they also made some disastrously bad decisions. I mean, talk about big ideas. Um, you, you, the first thing you do is you fire the entire Iraqi army uh, without telling them how we're going to enable them to provide for their families. But keep in mind, they're all military folks with weapons and training, and they took those weapons home when they uh, surrendered or, or changed into civilian clothes uh, after getting hammered during the fight to Baghdad. And th so that's hundreds of thousands of Iraqis whose incentive is to oppose the new Iraq rather than to support it. And that's not a wise move. And then compounded that by firing the Ba'ath Party. Yes, that was Saddam's party. And yes, the top levels of that needed to be killed or captured. And we were proud in the 101st Airborne Division uh, to frankly, bring his sons to justice after they shot at our forces when we tried to, to capture them. 
But when you go all the way down to level four in that party, now you're at the level of bureaucrats who actually we needed to run the governments of a country that we didn't understand, frankly. Um, and we could have, they were mostly Western educated, they were secular, a lot of them drank. I mean, what more could you want in partners in an Islamic country? And instead we fired all of them and again, created tens of thousands of the most educated. Keep in mind, there is no free market there whatsoever. Everything was owned by the government. And again, it was a government producing massive quantities of oil, even with embargoes on. Uh, and, and so it ran everything in that country, as we found out when we tried to do investment banking deals to revive a hotel and some other things, which we did do, I might mention to the real estate czar here. Um, but. That was disastrous. Now, we were able in, in the 101st Airborne Division area, I was sent north to Mosul at that point in time, we were allowed, we got a special dispensation from the ambassador, the only unit that did, to conduct reconciliation, bring them back into uh, government, if you will, back into society, being productive members. Uh, but without that, it would have been truly disastrous. So, uh, but again, then what you have is the, the war, then it gets sorted back out. We have an embassy. We start building the organizational architecture. We get the, the inputs generally right. And it's going along reasonably well. And then there's a catastrophic event in 2006 on the 22nd of February where a Sunni extremist group, Al-Qaeda, blows up a Shia shrine, the number three or four holiest shrine in, in Iraq, uh, that's in a Sunni area that is supposed to be safeguarding that shrine. And this set off a cycle of violence that invalidated our strategy. But it wasn't until late that year uh, that the president took charge. He said, this is going seriously south, replaces his secondary defense, and he takes over the Washington end of that war. And I think that there, there's never been a commander in chief as involved in a war as he was from that moment on, he obviously picked a new commander, a new ambassador, uh, a new secretary of defense, uh, ultimately the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And that team was extraordinary, and he was just uh, phenomenal. Uh, I remember going to see him after the confirmation hearing uh, and sat down with him. He said, well, General, you know, we're doubling down here in Iraq. I said, Mr. President, your military is going all in. And we need the rest of the government to go all in with us. This is a desperate moment. You know, there were 53 dead civilian bodies every 24 hours in Baghdad, the capital, just for violence. This is not military, police, us, others. This is, these are innocent civilians. Uh, and the manners of their death were pretty gruesome. Um, so he decides, and he does that, and he starts a meeting, again, on his battle rhythm, every Monday morning, 7.30 to 8.30, he would do a video conference with the ambassador and me with his entire national security team uh, around the table uh, in the West Wing of the White House. Now, that's completely unprecedented. It's never happened before. It's never happened since. I wish it had been continued by his successor. Um, but what it meant, it empowered the ambassador and me in a way you just can't believe, because everybody knows between me and him that I've got a direct line to the president and I'm gonna use it because both the ambassador and I thought that this was our final job in government uh, and we sometimes acted that way. Uh, we didn't go out there to lose gracefully. We went out to pull a country out of a Sunni-Shia civil war and our soldiers uh, and diplomats and spies and development workers enabled us to do that together with some great Iraqi partners. But his support in Washington was absolutely critical to that. And, uh, and again, when you have a direct line, 
and he empowers you. Because keep in mind, many of his service chiefs were not all that enthusiastic about the surge. One of them said, yeah, sir, I'm afraid we could break the service. He said, General, I'll tell you what will break the service. That would be losing a war. Uh, and he was exactly right. He enabled us uh, to do what we did, and that was to reduce violence by nearly 90%, pull a country out of a civil war, give it three and a half great years, uh, until unfortunately, right after our combat forces left his prime, the prime minister there, took actions that, that undercut some of what we achieved as security forces took their eye off Al-Qaeda, Al which by then was the Islamic State. And they, eventually we had to go help them deal with that as well. That was powerful. And uh, you took some of my thunder on my next question. So let me pivot here. What were the roots of our ultimate policy failure in Vietnam? Well, we didn't understand the nature of the conflict. In fact, we use at the start of that chapter a quote from Clausewitz, who says that the first most important task of a commander is to understand the nature of the conflict. And as I mentioned, by the time we took over, in a sense, from the French, now helping just South Vietnam because there had been a partition and a demilitarized zone, um, the real threat was in the villages, it was in the rice paddies, it was in the hamlets, and what was needed was to secure the people. By the way, job one during the surge in Iraq was to secure the people. And to do that during the surge, we reversed completely what we had been doing. You know, a lot of you read change management and all this stuff in business and all that. Change doesn't get any more substantial than 180 degrees. When you completely reverse what it was we've been doing, and by the way, do it over the objection of the prime minister, with whom I had quite a standoff and, and very, very early on over that and threatened that I would go to Washington. If he said that that's what he wanted to do, the president the next day, I said, I'm gonna to head to Washington on the next plane and I'm gonna take the policy with me. And I never heard it about it again and we were allowed to do what we intended to do. Um, in the case of Vietnam, again, as I mentioned earlier, what we did is we, we were weighed down by the lessons of Korea, which was much more of a conventional war and eventually would settle onto a war where there was essentially a DMZ and demilitarized zone, similar to what was established between North and South Vietnam. And we looked at that situation and had very conventional leaders who said, what you need are conventional forces, big divisions, as I mentioned, look just like ours, and that's what we're gonna help you build, instead of doing what the Vietnamese actually asked help in doing, which was to focus much more on securing the people. Those, I'm sure we have some Vietnam vets in here. Well, remember, the bulk of the population is right along, essentially along the coast. Uh, and instead of focusing on securing that, forcing the enemy to come uh, to us and our South Vietnamese counterparts, we went out and threshed around in the jungle and the mountains and all the rest of that. It's not to say that there weren't elements of that that would have been needed. But the focus, primary focus, should have been in the villages, which, by the way, is what the Marines did. Uh, they had a program called CAP, uh, Civil Action Patrol, or some, some like that. They lived with the people. They broke down into small units, and they had an amazing security record. The metrics were all very, very good for them. But our commander on the ground at that time was convinced that it was all about big units, big wars. By the way, that's where the promotions were as well. Uh, and what's really interesting for me is to go back and reread some books uh, that I'd read after I did the dissertation, where I was really focused on the battle scenes because I was a battalion commander, a brigade commander, this kind of thing. And I went back and reread We Were Soldiers Once and Young, which is also a phenomenal movie. And the 
the retired three-star who wrote that um, wrote something toward the end that I'd really not focused on. But he said, you know, that battle, the Idrang, it was a General Westmoreland saw this as a great victory uh, because we killed eight or 10 of them for every one of us. They, we still lost 40 or 50 soldiers, uh, in, I think in a single battalion, a very substantial fight. And again, it was seen as a validation of the air mobile mobility concept with the first air cav division that went in there. Um, and then he said, and then he got promoted to brigade commander while he was still in Vietnam in that tour. I think his brigade commander might've been wounded. Uh, and he has another even bigger battle where you lose over a hundred Americans, as I recall, but thousands of Vietnamese. And he said, you know, General Westmoreland might've thought that was a good exchange ratio, but I'm not sure the American public shared that assessment. And he was absolutely right, obviously. Uh, we could not win a war of attrition with a country that regarded casualties very, very differently uh, than we did. Uh, and he essentially, it was General Hal Moore saying, you know, we got this wrong. We did not have the right approach. We didn't have the right strategy. As I mentioned, eventually in 1968, General Abrams came in. He overhauled all of it. We finally had all the components uh, of a truly comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign. But it was just too late, unfortunately. And public support had eroded very seriously in 1968 with the Tet Offensive, which seemed to be uh, contrary to everything that our leaders had been saying, that, you know, victory is right around the corner, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, uh, and so forth, and all of a sudden you have this huge battle. Now, ironically, we defeated the Viet Cong, the, the, the South Vietnamese guerrillas, very, very substantially during that. Uh, and also very heavy casualties on the North Vietnamese units that entered South uh, during that time. The problem was it seemed invalid, our credibility was gone and the American people weren't listening to any kinds of uh, assertions that we were doing really well uh, after a lot of that that proved to be unfounded. We had a challenge with that when the surge began. And so we had big ideas for everything, uh, including one that was for dealing with the press. And the big idea for dealing with the press was be first with the truth. We want to beat the bad guys to the headline because there's a fight for that. You know, the bad guys had the CNN uh, Baghdad Bureau dialed into their foes just as we did into, into ours. So we want to get the headline, not the subhead. And then, but we're going to do it with the truth. And if we screw something up, we're going to acknowledge it. If we have a bad day, we're gonna say we had a terrible day today in Baghdad. There were three suicide bombings in three separate markets. Uh, we lost over 150 innocent civilians, many, many hundreds more wounded. Here's what took place. Here's what we're gonna learn from it. And here's how we're gonna mitigate the risk of that happening again. And that actually did happen and that's what we did. But then the metrics started working. We started to see civilian deaths started to come down very early on then suicide bombings, uh, that sensational attacks as we call them, we had to combat those, both car bombs and uh, suicide vest attacks. Then our casualties started to come down and all the while security incidents uh, after, after about four months. It got worse before it got better as I told Congress it would. But once the big ideas were implemented in, in a sufficient area and the additional forces enabled us to do that much more rapidly, uh, then all of a sudden you saw all the metrics start to come together. And by the time of the six month hearing, which is a very emotional uh, uh, set of hearings that the ambassador and I did, we had real results to, to report. 
that put more time on the Washington clock, which always seemed to be speeding ahead of the Baghdad clock. Uh, and we finally were able to get the support of Congress to continue that. And as I mentioned, at the end of 18 months or so, when the final surge forces went home, violence was down by nearly 90%. I remember that testimony of yourself and the ambassador. It was, it was compelling. <clears throat> Back to Afghanistan, you know, it took nine years to get the inputs right. And then we kept them right for only seven months. What did you mean by that? Well, we went into Afghanistan, both Afghanistan and Iraq, we had brilliant initial campaigns. Um, you know, in the case of uh, Iraq, the fight to Baghdad and then toppled the regime much more rapidly than anybody realized. In fact, frankly, more rapidly than the team that was supposed to do the post-conflict planning uh, had realized either. And that, would, that turned out to be a shortcoming. Uh, but in the case of Afghanistan, you know, a handful of special forces uh, on horseback and then CIA officers with footlockers of cash uh, worked with warlords who had tribal forces that could force the Taliban to mass. And when they massed, we clobbered them with our air power uh, and did that repeatedly until they basically had lost a huge number. Then the rest snuck away and went to Pakistan uh, where they uh, established sanctuaries in which they could rebuild over time. Uh, same with the, we eliminated the Al-Qaeda sanctuary in which the 9-11 attacks were planned and the initial training was conducted. That was the purpose of, of going into Afghanistan when the Taliban refused to turn them over to us. The decision by President Bush was, well, we're going to have to go in uh, and take down the regime and in order to eliminate that sanctuary. Uh, so again, that was quite extraordinary. Yes, Saddam Hussein did get away. And yes, that was a result of uh, very uh, inadequate uh, organizational architecture and authorities as we looked at later on. But then we shifted very quickly from Afghanistan and began to focus on Iraq. And ultimately, I became a big part of the problem there because we were constantly asking for more. During the surge in Iraq, I knew exactly what was out there in our forces, and I asked for every bit of it and got it because that was a country uh, on the brink of a full-on uh, civil war. Once the surge um, succeeded, we were able to start an orderly drawdown, something that we were able to carry out largely on the basis of the conditions on the ground rather than political necessity in Washington. Uh, we were able to shift focus uh, to Afghanistan, recognize that that was in much worse shape than people thought, and gradually provide the resources, get the big ideas right, and all the rest of that. Um, and that was very important. I should note that when I was a three-star in Iraq, um, I had a really great relationship actually with Secretary Rumsfeld. I pushed back on him when I was a one-star in Bosnia prior to all this beginning, uh, where I was uh, dual-hatted. I was the NATO op operations chief, and then I was also the deputy commander of a clandestine joint task force that was doing the war criminal hunt. And he challenged me one time at a video conference, and I pushed back immediately. He never did it again. And we had a great relationship uh, over the years. And, you know, your reward for doing something for him was you get to do something else for him. So, you know, I did the two-star. So the one-star tour, then I did the two-star tour in Iraq. Um, then he brings me right back right away to do an assessment. Uh, then I come home, I brief him on the assessment. He says, great, go back over to Iraq as a three-star, implement it. I did the three-star tour. He says, great, come home through Afghanistan and do an assessment of what's going on over there. So we took a team over there. That's where I came back. And, uh, and I said, you know, I, I realize that you, that there may be a perception uh, because the violence is so much less than Afghanistan, that that's all going well. 
I hate to break it to you, but it is not. And this is going to be the longest of the long wars. And it turned out to be correct. The challenges in Afghanistan were enormous. Uh, the biggest, first and foremost, was that the enemy had sanctuaries in Pakistan, and Pakistan wouldn't do anything about it and wouldn't allow us to do much about it. We could do nothing to the Afghan Taliban. We could do a little bit to the Haqqani Taliban. Uh, that's a massive uh, uh, deficiency. Beyond that, in contrast to Iraq, and I did a slide for him, it said Afghanistan does not equal Iraq. Um, Iraq had lots of money. Yes, if you could patch up the pipeline and get the towers back up with restring them with electricity, you could make a lot of money. We did during the surge. We were generating $100 billion in oil revenue alone. That is a lot. Really helps. You can do a lot with that kind of money. Afghanistan, they could generate maybe not even quite half a billion. So they're always dependent fully on us. Afghanistan's illiterate. Iraq was quite well educated. Afghanistan had no infrastructure. Iraq had a lot. Afghanistan had no history of strong central government, although that's sort of the system that we'd pushed on them. Uh, Iraq did, uh, and just on and on. You can, and Iraq had no real terrain other than urban terrain. I mean, it's not all that, there's some rivers and so forth. But Afghanistan, you got the Hindu Kush mountains and that is some serious geographic terrain. So the differences were enormous. It was much, much more challenging. And then as you noted, we didn't get the inputs right, inputs. That's the right big ideas, the right strategy. It's the right level of resources. It's the right organizational architecture with all the components that you actually need to carry out the kind of campaign that we, we had, that we had, had, to, had to implement. Um, the right preparation of our forces, the right leaders, the right number of diplomats, spies, development workers, rule of law experts, all of these other elements that were required. Um, and then certain concepts for even transition and so forth. None of that was in place until late 2010. We went in late 2001, nine years to get all that right because again, we just didn't focus on it sufficiently. And then, as you noted, we only kept it right for about six or seven months because in the very speech in which the president announced the buildup of our forces at West Point, and I was there, he also announced the drawdown date which is not something you really want to do if you're in a contest of wills with the enemy. There was a reason why I guess he did that, but it was not one that I uh, agreed with, so shall I say. Before we leave Afghanistan for, uh, for Ukraine, um, you never saw it as a 21st century uh, Vietnam for the United States. Why is that? Well, Vietnam truly was unsustainable for the United States. At the end of the day, the numbers of troops required, the money, the casualties, all of that were just greater than we could bear over an extended period of time, having not gotten the strategy right in the beginning. Um, Afghanistan, on the other hand, we had alternatives to withdrawing. I mean, we only had 3,500 troops on the ground at the end. Yes, the situation was unsatisfactory. It was maddening, it had deteriorated. Uh, Again, frustrating, I got it. Our host nation partners were you know, corrupt and inadequate and feckless and everything else, but surely that was a much better situation than what I feared would follow. I remember when President Biden announced that he was gonna follow through with the decision that his predecessor made to, to withdraw from Afghanistan, this terrible agreement with the Taliban of all people, giving them what they wanted. And by the way, also forcing 
the government of Afghanistan, elected government of Afghanistan, which was not even at the table for the negotiations, forced them to release 5,500 Taliban detainees to sweeten the pot to get the Taliban to accept what they want, which is our departure, um, but decided to continue through with it. Uh, we hadn't lost a soldier in over 18 months uh, at that time until the terrible bombing, suicide bombing at the uh, airfield that killed 13 of our men and women in uniform. Um, so there really was an alternative and it was sustainable. That's the big idea here is and sustainability is measured in the, uh, the expenditure of blood and treasure. If you haven't had a loss of life in 18 months, it's starting to look, you know, yes, it's a war zone without question, but you know, how many people know that we've had 30,000 troops on Japanese soil since the end of World War II? Very few, unless you're in our line of work, uh, because there's no casualties there, and because a lot of the funding is, is coming from Japan, et cetera. Same with Korea, same with a number of other places around the world where we've had troops for many, many years for very important tasks. The most important of which always, of course, is deterrence, because if you think that you spend a lot of money for deterrence, and we do, just see how much money you have to spend if you go to war. So I, one of those who believes that investing in deterrence is a very, very important uh, part of our, our, fis our fiscal budget. So uh, again, I felt that we could have stayed in Afghanistan. I said publicly when it was announced that we were gonna withdraw that I feared that we would regret that decision. I hope we have because what, what has resulted is not just heartbreaking and tragic for the Afghan people, it's downright disastrous. and it's, disastrous for us as well, I think. I mean, it's how interesting that the Taliban said, of course, we'll never allow extremists on our soil. And within a few months of our leaving, here's the commander of Al-Qaeda, who took over from Osama bin Laden, residing in a Taliban-controlled house about three blocks from the presidential palace in Kabul. Uh, and of course, our intelligence forces picked him up and greeted him when he was out on his morning coffee on his uh, balcony with a to a special kind of munition that they brought him to justice. <laughs> uh, you both visited uh, Kiev in May when it was under nightly attack uh, from Russian missiles. What did your meetings with the top generals, ministers, and spies tell you about the conflict there and the evolution of conflict in general? Well, and I was back uh, also just five weeks or so ago as well. Um, look, the Ukrainians are absolutely determined uh, to liberate their soil from Russia, which still controls about 18% of it. Uh, they have done amazingly well. I believe they are very, very deserving of our continued support. I believe it's very much in our national interest, not just charity, uh, to do that. Um, if you think about it, if you compare and contrast, in fact, the, the strategic leadership of President Zelensky of Ukraine on the one hand and Putin on the other, you know, Zelensky's first big idea is, I don't want to ride, I want ammunition. Second is, I'm going to stay right here in Kyiv. My family's going to stay here. We're going to defend Kyiv to the last. Uh, all men are going to stay in, in Ukraine, and we're going to fully mobilize our country. Those are pretty powerful big ideas. And by the way, they were not necessarily obvious at the time. You could have made an argument that he should leave Kiev and go out to the West because Kiev might fall. Uh, it did not, of course. Uh, the Ukrainians uh, proved to be extraordinary uh, in combat. They won the Battle of Kiev. Forces came from Belarus and from Russia. They eventually had to be withdrawn. They were taking so many losses. Uh, they lost the battles of Sumy and Chernihiv, two other northeastern cities, Kharkiv and the east, the second largest city. Uh, in the country, 
then the rest of Kharkiv province, uh, and then all the forces that were west of the Dnieper River that goes from north to south had to withdraw east of the river uh, on Russia's side as well. But this summer offensive has not achieved what they had hoped and what a lot of us had hoped. Uh, frankly, we didn't get any air power to them from the west prior to it. Uh, and our doctrine says to breach this kind of minefield and obstacle, which are really formidable, you have to have air superiority. Our tanks, did, ours did not arrive in time, not all the Leopards that Germany freed up. We took too long in that decision. Uh, and there's a handful of other actions that we could have taken more expeditiously that would have enabled them better. And we have now done that, but it's going to be too late for the summer offensive. And we're now in a situation where the general in charge, with whom I spent a couple of hours when I was last there, uh, has characterized as a stalemate. He also, though, laid out how you can break that stalemate, which is what they're determined to do. This is their war of independence. I mean, this is their war for their very survival. This is a democracy, however imperfect, against a kleptocracy led by a terrible strategic leader, except that this is not over yet. But think about Putin now in contrast. But by the way, Zelensky's communication skills were extraordinary, truly Churchillian, actually. Um, his example has been exemplary. You know, he, has, he took his suit off, put on an OD sweatshirt with the logo of the Ukrainian forces on it. He's worn that ever since, including when he addressed both houses of our Congress, the first wartime leader to do that since Churchill, actually. Uh, and, you know, how he's at the front lines. Putin is at the end of a big marble table uh, with all the minions down there so far that you almost have to have a microphone to be heard at the head table. So um, the co contrast with Putin, who underestimated the capabilities of the Ukrainians, vastly overestimated his own forces' capabilities, underestimated how we would respond. Uh, and I think we have responded very impressively, a combination of Congress and the White House. Again, I'd like to have seen certain decisions made much more rapidly. But by and large, we've done, I think, a very impressive job keeping the alliance together, leading the way both in terms of security and other forms of assistance, although Europe has now exceeded us in both categories, security and also uh, economic, financial, humanitarian, and then also in leading the effort in the financial, economic, and personal sanctions and export controls. Um, but again, it's not over. Uh, I firmly believe that we should be supporting a fellow democracy, that actually NATO's security now doesn't begin at the end of NATO countries' borders, it's at the Russian-Ukrainian border, uh, given how much we have supported Ukraine. And then eventually we need to provide them a path to NATO membership, to EU membership, and a very substantial reconstruction effort that will enable them to realize what a country with enormous potential. Talk about uh, innovation and warfare. What they're doing with maritime drones and, and other forms of drones is really extraordinary. They've used these so effectively that the Russians have had to withdraw the bulk of the Black Sea fleet from the very important uh, Russian port on the Crimean Peninsula of Sevastopol. So this is a massive achievement. And they've also, I mean, when you hit the enemy's Black Sea fleet headquarters during their command and staff meeting, that's a pretty decent achievement. Uh, and they did it with their own, their own uh, again, air drones and so forth. But again, not over. Uh, and uh, that war continues, and, and we need to, again, package together with aid for Israel, with aid for Taiwan, our southern border, a big package that can address all of these. 
Sir, um, we could go on for hours, but uh, we have a schedule. So I'm gonna get to this last question. Uh, what are the major lessons do you think readers will take away from this book? I hope I come back to where I started. I hope that it has to do with the critical nature of strategic leadership, which I think, again, is true of any endeavor that they're in. I mean, you didn't amass the real estate empire you had by getting the big ideas wrong. You understood the context in which you're operating. You understood all the details, the nuances of funding and financing and location, 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 and all these other aspects of real estate um, and have gotten it right. The big idea is right, when a lot of other people have not gotten them right, frankly. So strategic leadership is absolutely critical. Look, what you're doing as a strategic leader of a nonprofit, um, I mean, we just look at this guy, the example, I mean, also just the sheer guns on this guy. I mean, we're gonna, I'm gonna get him a new, and you have to get him a new suit though. I mean, he's about to, this is, your guns are gonna explode out of the, the shoulders here. Um, but no, I mean, so strategic leadership, strategic leadership, strategic leadership, and especially get the big ideas right. Understand the context, understand in this case, the nature of the conflict, the nature of that particular business sector, the nature of what you're trying to do with veterans, what you're trying to do with big data analytics and all the rest of that. Um, that is absolutely central. And if you don't get the big ideas right, I don't care how good your communication skills are, I don't care how inspirational and how exemplary the individual is, it doesn't much matter. Uh, and we saw that, frankly, in Iraq. We had, you know, again, a strategy that had been doing well, but was invalidated, and yet not everyone on the ground was willing to fully acknowledge that and carry out the very dramatic change that was required uh, because the surge that mattered most wasn't the extra forces, it was the surge of ideas, literally 180 degree different from what it was we were doing before. So I hope it's, again, the nature of leadership uh, and especially that at the strategic level and especially getting the big ideas right. Well, sir, uh, for the guests, the last probably paragraph you read in the book is where uh, General Petraeus mentions that all profits are being donated to uh, military and veterans' causes. It's very noble and honorable. Well, my profits, he has to make a living. <laughs> On behalf of our team here in Atlanta, we'd like to say thank you for spending this time with us. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you, Admiral. Well, good to be with you, Shibby. Yeah. Good to be with you all. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Tactical Leader Podcast. If this episode helped you along your journey of self-mastery and has inspired you to do more, I challenge you to head over to myvoicechallenge.com so you can find out how you can discover your voice, claim your independence, and build that thriving business that you've always wanted. Again, that's myvoicechallenge.com.